The following audio is from First Baptist Pelham in Pelham, Alabama. More information about First Baptist Pelham is available at fbcpelham.org. I'm glad to be anywhere today. Uh, I am, I'm not going to preach. We have someone to do that. But I do want to just say a word or two about our journey. About 14 months ago, you put confidence in this committee. You called it a pastor search committee. And we spent about 14 months together uh, praying, seeking the Lord. We received our training. We set out on our journey. And we received prayerful consideration of over 100 resumes. All of these men were men of God. We knew that God was up to something. And our committee has been unified and united from the very beginning. And that is a miracle in itself. In the fact that eight people could meet sometimes a couple of times a week and all uh, still like each other. Not get on each other's nerves. You know, I... I I've been on the other side of this coin many, many times. But I prayed that God would give me a verse. And he did. It's not my verse. The Apostle Paul said this to the Galatian church in chapter 6 and verse 9. Let us not grow weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Dr. Devin Watkins' resume was one of the first resumes we received. Somebody says, what took you so long? Well, you see, when you're working for Jesus, you don't get in a hurry. And you don't run ahead of him, and you don't lag behind. So we try to the best of our human ability to do that. In God's time, in God's way, Devin's resume kind of worked itself to the top. He says of his own words, the best thing about him is his sweet wife and two precious children. In case the two of you that have not met them are here today, they're sitting on the front. And so, uh, as I thought about just introducing him, the words of a great old hymn came to my mind. Brethren, we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. So pray with all your power as we try to preach the word. But let us keep all keep in mind the closing line of that hymn. All is vain unless the Spirit 
of the Holy One come down. Brethren, pray, and holy manna will be showered all around. Let me introduce to you Dr. Davin Watkins. The choice we believe of our God. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, please think with my mind. Speak with my lips. Overtake my body. And help me to preach the sweetest name on earth. Lord Jesus, this is for you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. It is an understatement to say that it is a delight and a joy for me and my family to be with you today. We are stoked. We're excited to be here and we thank you for your attendance. We thank you for your love and your support that has just been cascaded upon us over the last several days. This morning, I want to begin with a question. What do you do when Jesus is four days late? What do you do when Jesus doesn't respond to your crisis as quickly as you think he should? What do you do when after you've offered numerous petitions requesting the help of God, it seems as if the Lord is distant and cold? What do you do when Jesus doesn't show up to fix up the problem that's left you messed up? What do you do when Jesus is four days late? This morning, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 11, verses 17 to 44. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. John chapter 11. We'll begin at verse 17, we'll read through verse 44. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. 
When Mary heard this, she got up quickly, went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, notice how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen. A cloth was around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. At the beginning of John chapter 11, we are told that the man named Lazarus was sick. Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. All three of these siblings lived in the city of Bethany, which was located about two miles east of the holy city of Jerusalem. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus loved Jesus, and Jesus loved them. I can well imagine that whenever Jesus and the disciples made their way to the holy city, they would often stop and stay in Bethany with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We read that Lazarus was sick. And so the sisters sent word to Jesus. They did what we would do. They said, Jesus, please come help. We need you. I don't know how they sent word to Jesus. I don't know if they sent a messenger. I don't know if they composed a letter and mailed it. I don't know if they shot him an email or tweeted him on his Twitter page. I don't know if they put a post on his Facebook wall, but regardless, they said to Jesus, your BFF Lazarus is sick. And instead of Jesus dropping everything, being Johnny on the spot and running to Bethany, we are told that he stayed where he was for two more days. Now, intuitively, we know this could be problematic. We all know people who have gotten sick, and instead of getting better, they get worse. We have a sneaking suspicion that this just might happen to our good friend Lazarus. This observation did not go unnoticed by the disciples. They questioned Jesus on this, and Jesus said to them, Lazarus is asleep, and I'll go there, and I'll wake him up. The disciples are 
Never portrayed as the sharpest tools in the shed, they're always a couple of fries short of a happy meal. They don't quite always understand what Jesus is saying, and so they conclude if Lazarus is asleep, he can wake up on his own. And then John tells us that Jesus plainly said to his disciples, Lazarus is dead, and I'm going there to bring him back to life. The one who delays is omniscient. What I mean by that is that Jesus knows everything. He knows everything about everything. There's no one thing that he knows better than any other thing because he knows everything equally well. He knows the future as certainly as he knows the past. Before Lazarus even died, he knew that Lazarus would die. And he also says to his disciples, I know that he's dead. He's already in the tomb. And I'm going to Bethany to do something spectacular to increase not only your faith, but the faith of others. So Lazarus is dead and I'm going to go there and I'm going to raise him from the dead. The one who delays is omniscient. He makes his way to Bethany. Uh, The word gets to the home of Mary and Martha that Jesus had arrived. Martha gets up with haste. She makes her way to the city gate. She is gripped by grief. Tears are streaming down her face. She loves Lazarus. She finds Jesus and She says, Jesus, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. But then I think she composes herself. And she says, but I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Thinking he was saying only what a rabbi is supposed to say at a time like this, she said, yes, I know. He will rise on that great getting up morning on that day of the eschaton. I know he'll get up on that last day of resurrection. And Jesus locks eyes with her, and he says to her clearly, I am resurrection and life. This is the fifth of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. On seven different occasions, John quotes Jesus by using an I am statement, language that's only reserved for God, and through that, Jesus is laying claim to his divinity. He is clearly portraying his identity. These these are messianic metaphors. Jesus could have spoken in numerous ways the phrase I am. In the Greek, it's ego a me. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's the language that God uses in Exodus chapter 2 when he speaks to Moses through the burning bush that was on fire but not being consumed. When Moses says, what is your name? The Lord says, you tell them, I am sent you, uh, sent, uh, you to them. I am the God who always was, is, and will forever be. I am sent you to Pharaoh. And Jesus adopts that very same language. On seven occasions in John's gospel, he uses the language that's reserved for God and God alone. In fact, no one in Jewish history would ever speak such a phrase, speak such language. And when Jesus would say it, it would gather a collective gasp in the crowd. And Jesus was clearly saying, I know who I am. You see, Jesus never had an identity crisis. Jesus never had to go find himself. Jesus never had to sow his wild oats. Jesus always knew his identity. He is the God-man. 
It's not that he's a man who became God, of which there have been none. It's not that he's merely a godly man, of which there have been many. He is the one and only God-man, fully God and fully man, 100% divine, 100% human. That ought to blow our minds. It blows my mind. I can't quite understand it, but I embrace it and I believe it, for Jesus is the God-man. Jesus says, I am resurrection and life. Resurrection is not just an eschatological event that will happen at the end of time. Resurrection is a person. To know Jesus is to know resurrection. Jesus says, I am resurrection and I am life. Life is not just some philosophical idea, some pie in the sky of a good existence. No, to know life is to know Jesus. To know Jesus is to know life. And Jesus says that Even though a person dies, yet if they believe in me, they will live. Do you believe this? One of my favorite quotes comes from a man by the name of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody said that one day you'll hear that D.L. Moody has died. Don't you believe it? Not for one second. For in that moment, D.L. Moody will be more alive than ever before. How can D.L. Moody make such a statement? He can make that statement because he knows that Jesus is resurrection and life. Not even death can separate us from God. Martha, do you believe this? She responds by saying, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. This is a monumental confession on the lips of Martha. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now for John... The raising of Lazarus is a pivotal story. In fact, he places it smack dab in the middle of his gospel track. There are 10 chapters before this story. There are 10 chapters after this story. It is through this story that the entire gospel of John swivels. This is the hinge in John's gospel. And at the very heart of this hinge story is this conversation between Jesus and Martha And we find on the lips of Martha this great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And I think the reason John likes this story so much is because it affirms, fulfills, and describes his mission statement. The purpose statement of John's gospel is found at the very end, John uh, chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And by believing, you may have life in his name. Did you catch that? These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is who? The Christ, the Son of God. And by believing that he is the Christ, the Son of God, you may have life in his name. What did Martha proclaim? She proclaimed, I believe you are Christ, Son of God. So when John hears this story, he says, I'm going to arrange the entire gospel around this declaration that Jesus is Christ, Son of God. So he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing you may have life in his name. Have you ever stopped to consider the these things that are written about this Jesus in the Gospel of John? In John chapter 1, it is this Jesus who's identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In John chapter 2, it is this Jesus who turns water into wine at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. In John chapter 3, it's this Jesus who, who is approached by 
a man named Nicodemus under the cover of night, which incidentally is the first Nick at night, and Jesus tells him how to be saved. In John chapter 4, it is this Jesus who's an equal opportunity savior, and he tells a Samaritan woman at a well how she can be saved. In John chapter 5, it is this Jesus who heals an invalid of some 38 years. In John chapter 6, it is this Jesus who feeds 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish. In John chapter 7, it is this Jesus who says to the crowd, whoever believes in me, streams of living water will well up inside. In John chapter 8, it is this Jesus who gives grace to a woman caught in the act of adultery. In John chapter 9, it is this Jesus who... um, heals a man born blind. In John chapter 10, it is this Jesus who says, I am the gate and I am the shepherd. In John chapter 11, it is this Jesus who raises Lazarus from the dead. In John chapter 12, it is this Jesus who triumphantly enters the city of Jerusalem for the very last time in his life. In John chapter 13, it is this Jesus who washes the dirty, smelly feet of his disciples. In John chapter 14, it is this Jesus who declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes the Father except through me. In John chapter 15, it is this Jesus who says, I am the vine and you are the branches. In John chapter 16, it is this Jesus who promises the gift of the Holy Spirit to anyone who believes. In John chapter 17, it is this Jesus who prays for himself, his disciples, and all believers. In John chapter 18, it is this Jesus who's arrested. In John chapter 19, it is this Jesus who is crucified. In John chapter 20, it is this Jesus who is raised from the dead. In John chapter 21, it is this Jesus who reinstates a wayward apostle named Peter. These things are written about this Jesus so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you too may have life in his name. Martha says, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God. She runs back to the house. She pulls her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she says. He's asking for you. Mary springs to her feet. She abruptly leaves the house. Those who had gathered to mourn with these two grieving sisters saw how quickly Mary got up. They assumed that she was going to the tomb to mourn there, so they too quickly got up and they followed her. Instead of going to the cemetery, she took a left at Main Street. She went to the entrance of the city gate, she saw Jesus. She fell at his feet. She said the same thing her sister had said. Jesus, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. At this point in the story, John pulls back the reins. It's almost as if the narrative comes to a screeching halt. He slows it down. In his way, he's doing slow motion. In his way, he's slowing it down because John wants us to see something. Did you hear how choppy the phrases are? Did you catch just how uh, fragmented all the sentences are? We are told that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord. They replied, Jesus wept. Some said, see how he loved him. And others said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And once more, Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. John slows down the narrative. 
I think he does it this way so that we can pay attention to the demeanor of Jesus. On two occasions, in those couple of verses, John tells us that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Those are interesting phrases in the original language. It's two phrases, deeply moved in spirit and troubled. What they mean is that Jesus was angry. Jesus was perturbed. Jesus was frustrated. When I understand that, I ask the question, why? Why is Jesus the one who's angry, frustrated, and perturbed? If anybody should be angry, frustrated, and perturbed, it should be Martha. I mean, she sent the letter, but Jesus didn't come when she asked him to come. He's late, her brother's dead, in the tomb for four days. If anybody should be angry, it should be dear sister Martha. If anybody should be angry, it should be Mary, right? I mean, she went out there and she fell on her knees uh, at the feet of Jesus, and she's a grieving sister. And if anybody should be upset, it's Mary. And what about poor old boy Lazarus? I mean, if anybody should be upset, it's Lazarus. A few days earlier, Lazarus had vim and vigor. He was doing well. He got sick, but people get sick every day. They sent word to Jesus. Jesus can help. He can heal. He'll be here soon. And day after day passed, and then eventually Lazarus passed. He'd been in the tomb for four days. If anybody ought to be upset, it should be Mary or Martha or even Lazarus. But John clearly tells us it's Jesus. Jesus is deeply moved in spirit and trouble. Why? Well, much ink has been spilt trying to answer this question. And some have said the reason Jesus is upset is because he's upset at death. Because death is a byproduct of sin and the Savior despises sin. Certainly, whether directly or indirectly, Death came into the world because of sin. And all of us are sons of Adam or daughters of Eve. And so all of us will die eventually. And that death is a result of the sin nature. So I guess one could say that Jesus is upset because of death and because of the curse of sin. But I just told you that the one who delayed is omniscient. He knows what he's about to do. So that argument doesn't hold very much water to me. Some others have said, well, the reason Jesus is so angry is because when he sees the death of Lazarus, he visualizes his own upcoming impending death that is inevitable. The details are strikingly similar. There is a grave, a tomb, and outside that tomb is a large stone that's rolled in front of it. And some have said when Jesus peered into death and he saw the rock and he saw the grave, he was reminded of his own upcoming death. And they say that it, Jesus was stressed out about that for even the Garden of Gethsemane. It's Dr. Luke who tells us that Jesus sweat drops of blood. He's so stressed out. He even asked the Father, is there any other way that this cup can pass from me? And so people say Jesus is stressed out and he sees his own upcoming death. But once again, that argument doesn't satisfy me because Jesus, who delays, is omniscient and he always knew his mission to seek and to save that which was lost. And the cross of Jesus Christ never surprised Jesus Christ. He knew this was plan A. There is no other plan B. 
Jesus was always well aware of that. So I'm still left with the same question. Why is Jesus the one who's so upset? And the only answer I can get from the text is this. Jesus is upset. He's angry. He's frustrated. He's perturbed because nobody in the crowd thinks he can handle the situation. Nobody thinks he can handle it. Mary and Martha don't really think he can handle it. What did they both say? Jesus, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. What's the implication? Now he's dead as a doornail, and there's nothing you can do about it. The crowd, they don't believe Jesus can handle it. What do they say? Oh, see how he loved him. But could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man from dying? What's the implication? Now this man is dead. And there's not a whole lot that can be done about it. Even when Jesus orders for the stone to be rolled away, it is sweet sister Martha who gingerly tiptoes up to him and says, Jesus, I wouldn't do that if I were you. Why? The body's been in the grave for four days. It's beginning to decay. It's beginning to stink. In so many words, what Martha is saying to Jesus is, Jesus, don't embarrass yourself. We know that you're mighty. We know that you're a healer. We, we know that you are from God, but I think this may be above your pay grade. Jesus, I wouldn't roll away the stone if I were you. John reinforces this point when he says on two occasions that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. In the first century, there was religious folklore that was a belief, it was pretty common among pagan people, that there was an understanding that the spirit of a dead person could hover around a grave for up to but no more than three days. Now keep in mind that is nowhere taught in the Bible. But you know religious people who aren't biblical, don't you? On two occasions, John tells us that Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. What's his point his point is that nobody thinks Jesus can handle this. This is too big. This is too overwhelming. Mary and Martha aren't really convinced. They have good theology, but when the rubber meets the road, they are filled with doubt and fear. They don't believe Jesus can handle it. Nobody in the crowd thinks Jesus can handle it. Even pagan people don't think Jesus can handle it because even according to religious folklore, there's no way that the spirit of Lazarus is there around the tomb because it's been four days. Not too many years ago, I came across uh, an interview that was done with the vice president of marketing at Verizon Cell Phone. The one doing the interview asked the question, how do you come up with your marketing campaigns? How do you come up with a picture of the United States with all the red dots on it and saying how uh, everybody is covered because of Verizon? And, and the VP said, well, it's pretty simple. You can have our best package. You can have unlimited minutes on your plan. But if you're outside the service area, all those minutes do you no good. So we want to communicate to the American people that you are never outside the service area of Verizon. My friends, I came this morning to tell you that you are never outside the service area of the Savior. 
You are never outside the service area of the Savior. You are never outside of the service area of the Savior. Your problem, your predicament, your prognosis, never outside the service area of the Savior. And I know good Christians who come together and they'll say to me, but pastor, my marriage is too far gone. My wayward daughter is too lost. My finances are too messed up. My sin is too gross. My pain is too insurmountable. My suffering is too overwhelming. I came this morning just to tell you, church, that you are never outside the service area of Christ because Jesus is always able. Don't just take my word for it. Talk to Joseph. Joseph's jealous brothers placed him in a pit. But even that pit was not outside the service area of the Savior, for God reached down into the pit, took Joseph by the nap of the neck, and placed him in the palace. If you don't believe Joseph, all you got to do is talk to our good friends, the three Hebrew boys of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They stood up for the Lord, and because of that, they refused to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar threw them into the fiery furnace, and yet even that fiery furnace was not outside the service area of God, for Jesus showed up. And he danced with them and had a block party right there in the fiery furnace so that not even a hair on their head was singed. All you got to do is just talk to Jonah. Jonah will tell you that he tried to get outside the service area of God. The Lord told him to go to Nineveh. He turned and went the opposite direction to Tarshish. He boarded a boat. There was a severe storm. The sailors threw him overboard. God provided a large whale that swallowed up Jonah and sent him down to the depth of the Mediterranean Sea. But even the depth of the Mediterranean Sea in the smelly belly of a fish is not outside of the service area of the Savior. For there, God commanded the fish to vomit Jonah onto dry land, and that's exactly what the fish did. If you don't believe Jonah, then all you got to do is just talk to Paul and Silas. They were in a Philippian jail cell, and even that Philippian jail cell was not outside the service area of the Savior. For about midnight, they were singing praises unto the Lord. They were having a worship service, and the Spirit of God was so powerful that, their, that the shackles of their chains were loose. The jail doors were flung open. The jailer ran in thinking that everyone had uh, gone and escaped. And he was about to take his own life. And Paul and Silas say, wait, stop. And he calls for lights. And the jailer comes in and says, brothers, how can I be saved? Not even a jail cell is outside of the service area of Christ. Not even the God-forsaken strip of land called the Gaza Road is outside the service area of Christ. You remember the story of Philip? Philip is told by the Spirit of God to go down to Gaza. He says, why am I going to Gaza? I'm having a fruitful ministry here. And God says, I want you to have a fruitful ministry of one. I want you to go down to Gaza, and I'm going to tell you, run beside a chariot, and in that chariot is going to be an Ethiopian eunuch. And that person who's an Ethiopian eunuch was vastly different than Philip. He had a different face. He was from a different place. He was of a different race. And yet the Spirit of God said, this is one of my beloved children. And so he presents the gospel to the Ethiopian Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch says, look, there's water. Don't miss the irony. He's on a desert road. There's water. What should keep me from being baptized? And not even the God-forsaken area of the Gaza road was outside of the service area of God. What am I trying to tell you? I'm trying to say that John tells us this story so that you and I will believe that we are never outside the service area of Christ. 
There is nothing that's too insurmountable for our Lord. That's not just what we speak on our lips of theology. That's what we live by our lives. Jesus said, roll away the stone. Martha said, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And in so many ways, Jesus said, darling, I don't really care if he's been in there four days or 4,000 years. I'm resurrection and life. And the one who is resurrection and life said in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I'm so glad he specified, aren't you? Because if the author of life, resurrection life, had not specified Lazarus, and if he had just said to death, come out, then all the dead in Christ would have come out of the grave. He said, Lazarus, come out. And all my friends, I wish we had been there. I hope that there is a video recording of this event when we get to heaven so we can see it. Because if you give me some homiletical liberty, if you give me some license, what I think happened was that Lazarus comes hopping out of the grave. You say, but pastor, how do you know he's hopping? Well, the text clearly says that his hands and his feet were bound. So if your hands and feet are bound, yet your creator says, come out, and he calls you by name, you're not gonna, you're not gonna linger, so you just begin to hop out of the grave. So what Lazarus did was a hallelujah hop. He did a faith trot. He did a messianic mambo. He did the believer boogie. He did all those dances so that he could come out and say, my savior has called me by name. I can't stay in the grave clothes any longer. I can't stay in the tomb. I was dead, but now I'm alive again. So Lazarus came hopping out of the grave. And Jesus said, take off the grave clothes. Let him go. That's my child. That's my BFF. That's my friend. He's alive. So take off the grave clothes and let him go. This was a watershed moment in the ministry of Jesus. We are told in John chapter 12, that because of Lazarus, many people came to faith in Jesus. Many Jews placed their faith in Jesus because of the testimony of Lazarus. My friend, don't ever underestimate the power of your story. Your story of what God has done for you, to you, through you. Don't ever underestimate that. For in John chapter 12, literally hundreds of people come to faith in Christ because of the testimony of this cat that was dead and is alive. Lazarus' story is a watershed moment in the ministry of Jesus. I do need to quickly make a distinction. There is a difference between the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus. The Apostle Paul will say of Jesus that he is the first fruit of resurrection. First, not in chronology, first in importance. Lazarus is one of those few individuals that was raised only to die again. At some point, he had another funeral. But Jesus, Jesus was nailed on a cross made of wood. He hung there, not because of his sin, but because of your sin. And because of my sin. No one took his life from him. He willingly, freely laid it down. To the point where Jesus declared, it is finished. 
He drank every last drop of the holy hostility, the wrath of God that was poured out. Jesus paid it all, and Jesus died. They took his dead body, they placed it into a tomb. They rolled a stone in front of it. And the rest of Friday, it seemed as if God said nothing. And on Saturday, it looked as if God did nothing. But early on Sunday morning, early on Sunday morning, Jesus rose with all power, victory, and healing in his hands. Jesus rose. I came to tell you this morning that we serve a risen Savior, and he's in the world today, and I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy, and I hear his voice of cheer, and just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me, and he talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. This Jesus who is four days late is right on top. This Jesus who shows up later than we think is exactly in the right moment, in the right place, at the right time. Because Jesus is always able and you are never outside the service area of the Savior. To God be the glory. My friends, this is not a trial sermon. This is God's sermon for God's people. So on this day, if you've gathered and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I invite you to trust him as your Lord. He died for you. In a few moments, Paul is going to come and lead us in a song. I'll be standing here. You come and you say, Pastor, I need Jesus. If that's you, my friend, I want you to come on the first note. Maybe you're here and you've been walking with Christ for a long time, but let's be honest, you've got a problem that seems overwhelming. You've got a predicament that you don't know how to solve. You've got a prognosis, and it scares you to death. You've been crying out to the Lord. You've been asking for help, and he's four days late. And you wonder, Jesus, are you ever going to come? Are you ever going to fix it? I want you to know that your Jesus is able. Maybe you need to come this morning and pray here at the altar. Cast your cares upon the one who cares so much for you. This is God's invitation. As he speaks, you respond in obedience unto him. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. And Lord, if there's one who does not know you as Savior, I pray that today will be the day of their salvation. For those of us who are like Mary and Martha or the people in the crowd, who somehow have pretty good theology, but when the rubber meets the road, we become gripped by grief, overwhelmed by doubt and despair. Oh Lord, on this day, will you help us Help us to acknowledge that you are the Savior who is able. As we sing and you move, we will respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our prayer today is that if you are in here at 915 for worship, that you will be in Sunday school at 1045.
We will have another service identical to this one at 1045. Immediately following that service, one important agenda is that you go to the child care area if you have small kids there and get your children. The babies and the children will come back into this room at 1220. We will start promptly at 1220 being called into a special business meeting for the affirmation vote of Pastor Davin as our senior pastor. You need to be here. Our deacons will administer that vote as we told you last week. We will take care of that quickly. We'll do that with as minimal confusion as possible. I do understand that there will be noise. There will be babies. There will be children. That's okay. It's the Lord's day. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. So I want to ask you to, in an orderly fashion, after the 1045 service, go to the children's wing, get your children, come back in here. Please sit as a family unit if you can, because we will not have church roles. We won't be trying to check whether you're a, a, a member of First Baptist Church Pelham. That is going to be on the honor system. But we will ask the spiritual heads of the households to decide whether your members of your family vote today or not. Okay? There's not going to be any arguing. There's not going to be any fussing about that. We're just going to let you do that as the spiritual heads of your household. So please do that for us today. I don't know about you, but I've been in the presence of the Lord already today. He's, in a, he's here in a mighty way, and he's going to continue to do that in the next service. So make sure you do that for us. If you don't have a Sunday school class, you're more than welcome to come to my class in the choir room immediately following this, this time. I'd love to have you. Uh, it's a great lesson today, and it's, a, it's an open room with a lot of people in it, so you can come and be anonymous if you want to, okay? Let's bow our heads in prayer, and let's prepare ourselves for the rest of the day. Father, we do thank you. Father, we have been in your presence today. We have felt the power of your Holy Spirit, not only in the words that we have sang, but in the words that we have heard from your scriptures today. And Father, I pray that you will never leave us. I know your Bible, your word says and you promise you'll never leave us and never forsake us. I know in my heart you'll never leave me, but I don't want you to ever leave this place. I want you to always reside here. Father, may we see the Shekinah glory of your honor and your glory in this place as we leave today. Father, I pray you'd preside over our 1220 meeting today. Father, I pray your spirit would anoint us and do the things that you've called us to do. Purpose us to do the things according to your goodwill and your good pleasure, according to everything that you've promised us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being at the right hand of the Father today. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins that we might have eternal life. And sweet Holy Spirit, we thank you for being our comforter, our counselor, for being the one that will hold us until Jesus comes again. And we ask all this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about First Baptist Pelham and other free resources like this one, log on to fbcpelham.org.